0: One of the Apostle Paul's favorite words is the word therefore. Uh, Preachers will sometimes tell you that when you read a therefore in the Bible, you should stop and ask what is there for. That's clever, and it's also very helpful because it's true. The word therefore is really, really important. The word therefore indicates a reasoned argument or a reasoned application is being made tells you there's a structure to what's being said, a, a reasonable structure. In Romans chapter 12, the therefore is really in some ways the key hinge in the entire letter. The therefore is there for a very good reason. It marks a transition in the book of Romans. Fra- Francis Schaeffer famously asked the question, how should we then live? The Apostle Paul here is doing the same. It's like he's posing that question, and now he's going to answer it in light of everything he's been saying in the first 11 chapters of this apostolic-inspired theological masterpiece, How, then, should we live? That therefore tells you Paul is now going to answer that question. Paul is appealing to the Roman Christians to live in a certain way, based on the teaching he's been giving them, based on the teaching he's been unfolding for them in the first 11 chapters of the book. That's why Paul says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, He's making an appeal to the mercies of God, the the catalog of God's mercies he's been laying out in the first 11 chapters of this book. The mercies of God comprise the gospel in all its different facets. The manifold mercies of God have really been the theme of the letter up to this point. What mercies of God has Paul been unpacking in this letter? Well, I won't try to tell you all of them, but just a few. The mercies of God in this letter to this point include the forgiveness of sins and justification by faith. The reality, the good news that we are declared righteous by God even though we are still sinners when we trust in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He speaks of the mercies of God in baptism as we are united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And therefore dead to sin and alive to Righteousness. The mercies of God include his faithfulness to us in the midst of suffering, how he works in us to use suffering to produce mature character. He mentions that mercy in chapter 5. The mercies of God include his unbreakable bond of love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's in chapter 8. The mercies of God including choosing us unconditionally to be his people, unconditional election. The mercies of God include his gift of the Holy Spirit, The life-giving spirit by whose power we put sin in our lives to death. The mercies of God include his covenant promises from one generation to the next. As God's promises extend through history, the, the promises of God, the covenant of God is no longer confined primarily to Israel, but now is flowing out to the nations. This is the mercy of God as well. The mercies of God include his plan to bless all the families of the earth so that the covenant promise God gave to Abraham will indeed come to pass and Abraham will inherit the world. Paul has been reviewing the mercies of God to his people, cataloging those mercies now. Now it's time to pull out the implications of those mercies in the remaining chapters, the implications of those mercies for how we live. Paul wants to take the truths that we now know and he wants us to live them out. He wants us to take these truths and quite literally embody them. He wants us to embody these truths in our shared life together. Paul has announced Jesus is king Now he wants them to flesh out what that rain means in daily life. And so over the course of the next four chapters, the rest of the book, basically, Paul will apply the mercies of God to every square inch of life. Everything from diet to debt to politics to race relations to suffering to hospitality Paul will show how the mercies of God impact our lives in every area, in every way. Paul desires for the mercy of God to cover and transform all of life. Paul wants us to see the whole Christian life is grounded in God's mercies. And so what you have in Romans 12, 1 and 2 is really a summary of that. And as a summary, it's very, very helpful. Paul here is crystallizing what the Christian life looks like, flowing out of God's mercies. And every detail here matters. Even the fact, even something as small as the fact that Paul addresses them as brothers In the previous chapters, Paul's been talking about Jew and Gentile and basically the dance of Jew and Gentile and God's plan through history. Paul here is a Jew, of course, writing to mostly Gentile, uh, a, a Gentile audience in Rome. So he's a Jew writing to mostly Gentiles, and yet he calls them brothers. You just didn't do that in the ancient world. And so Paul is defying convention by calling them brothers, but he's doing so for a reason. Paul calls them brothers because in Christ they are his brothers. Together they are part of a new humanity, a new family God is forming in Christ. Through the gospel, God is forming an international people. Where by faith in Christ we become brothers and sisters. The gospel creates new relationships and transforms old relationships. It creates an international brotherhood of believers. We are brothers now because we are children of Abraham and children of the Heavenly Father. It's interesting here, too, to note that Paul's instructions are not just for individuals. It's not like you run out and apply these instructions one by one. No, these are instructions given to They apply to individuals, certainly, but these are instructions given to the community, to the church. This is corporate. Because for Paul, the Christian life is always an ecclesial life. It is a churchly life. The good Christian is a good churchman. And, of course, that stands in sharp contrast with the radical individualism that characterizes so much of modern America, where each person gets to define his own religion and his own reality, even. Given radical individualism in America today, each person gets to be his own cult, you could say. You are a cult of one. You are your own cult leader. You get your own religion, your own reality. That's where we are. Paul would not stand for that. Paul is giving instructions that presuppose the importance of community. We're going to live in fellowship. Relationships matter. Other people matter. This is is something we're to do corporately. In fact, I think what you see here, and really throughout this letter, throughout this chapter really especially, but throughout the Bible as a whole, the Christian faith perfectly balances the one and the many, the individual and the community. That's evident here in this passage and the rest of this chapter and indeed the whole book and indeed the whole Bible. uh, That's something that I think you see there in verse 1. He says, I want you to present your bodies, plural, a living sacrifice, singular. Plural bodies offered up as a singular sacrifice. It might seem that Paul's gotten his grammar confused. How can bodies be plural and sacrifice be Singular. How can many bodies be offered as one sacrifice? But actually, there's no grammatical mistake here at all. For Paul, the Christian life brings together the one and the many. Many individuals acting in unison, acting in unity. The many acting as one. Again, the Christian life is a shared life. It's a shared sacrificial life. It's a communal life, a churchly life. And, of course, all of this is because we are made in and redeemed into the image of the Trinity, the triune God, who is one and many, one God existing eternally in three persons. That's the one and the many, and that's the pattern for humanity. But there are several other crucial things going on here that we need to notice. In verse 1, Paul mentions offering our bodies to God. In verse 2, Paul will describe the renewal of our minds. So you've got bodies and minds in view here. Bodies and minds both are to be consecrated to God. This is holistic. This is calling for holistic obedience and devotion. Bodies and minds. Humans really are integrated creatures. You could say we have an inner aspect, what we might call the soul or the mind or the heart, and we have an outer aspect, the body. They can be distinguished, but they belong together. You might say man is a soul in bodily form. Paul here again calls for total consecration, consecration of the whole person, body and mind. Consecration of the whole person inside and out. He mentions the body here first. Our bodies are to be offered as a living sacrifice. And really, this is very interesting. The mercies of God have been expressed ultimately how? How has God ultimately expressed his mercies to us? He's ultimately expressed his mercies in the form of Jesus' bodily sacrifice on the cross. The mercy of God is ultimately revealed in the bodily sacrifice of Jesus. And so the logical response to that is for us to sacrifice ourselves bodily in return. Sacrifice calls for sacrifice. Bodily offering is reciprocated by bodily offering. Self-giving love demands a response of self-giving love. If Jesus has given himself for us, offering his body as a sacrifice on the cross, how can we not offer our bodies as a sacrifice back to God? But this is important to see here. The, the sacrifice that Paul calls for here is not just a response to what Jesus has done. It's actually a participation in what Jesus has done. It's not like Jesus' sacrifice is over here and our sacrifice is over here. No, Jesus' sacrifice comes to include our acts of sacrifice as well. We offer ourselves up to God as a living sacrifice in and through Jesus in union with him. And in fact, that's what makes our sacrifice to God acceptable. God requires sacrifices to be without spot or blemish. But we know our sacrifices have many spots and many blemishes. Our sacrifices are never perfect. Only through Christ can our sacrifices Be accepted. Paul says here, "This is our reasonable act of sacrifice." That word "reasonable" is really, really crucial. It's actually the word "logos" is the root of the word. There, Uh, you might know the word "logos" from John's Gospel, John chapter one, where Paul says, "In the beginning was the," where John says, "In the beginning was the logos." He's talking about the eternal Son, and then, of course, later on, he says, "The logos became." Flesh, the Logos, the Word, was made flesh. Paul says here this is our Logos offering. Now, he certainly does mean by that it's our reasonable offering, our rational offering, our logical offering. That's absolutely true. Translations that that, that put it that way, I think they're capturing something that's really being said here. It only makes sense, it's only logical for us to give ourselves to the one who gave himself to us and for us. Again, we've, we've already seen that. His sacrifice... Requires a response of sacrifice. That that makes sense. And further, we can say his sacrifice really does restore us to rationality. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, one of the things it does is it heals our minds so we can begin to think rightly. He restores our thinking to reality. He saves us from futile and darkened patterns of thought brought on by idolatry. We saw this a few weeks ago in Romans chapter 1, that idolatry makes people insane so that you lose your grip on reality. If idolatry makes people insane, then worshiping the true God is going to restore our sanity. True worship restores our sanity. We come to see God and ourselves and the world for what they really are. But I think the term logos means something even more. It is a Logos act of worship, a Logos sacrifice. I think this is Paul's way of suggesting this is a sacrifice offered in and through Christ himself. We offer our bodies to God in union with the Logos, the incarnate God-man. The Logos is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It is his sacrifice that undergirds our sacrifice. It is his sacrifice that makes our sacrifice acceptable. In the preceding chapters, Paul has been telling the story of God's covenant faithfulness. Now Paul is saying, continue that story of covenant faithfulness. Continue to live in that story of covenant faithfulness. It is a story of sacrifice. And if the story is going to keep going, then we must live as a sacrificial people. In fact, it's interesting You go a little further in Romans, you come to chapter 15, verse 16. Paul describes his apostolic ministry in terms of priestly liturgical ministry. And what is his offering? His offering to God are his Gentile converts. That's the offering he's making as a priest. His liturgy of sacrifice, what is he offering God? He's offering the Gentiles that he has converted through his ministry as a sacrifice. See, the whole history of redemption can be summed up in that phrase, the mercies of God, because the whole history of redemption flows out of God's manifold mercies. But the whole history of redemption can also be summed up in that one word, sacrifice. God's sacrifice for his people, God's sacrifice of his people. He sacrifices for us in order to make us an acceptable sacrifice to him in return. What does sacrifice mean for us? Obviously, there are things that are unique about Jesus once and for all. Sacrifice on the cross. What does sacrifice mean for us? We're not sacrificing to atone for our sins. What are we doing? For us, sacrifice is obedience. It is the sacrifice of an obedient life. In 1 Samuel 15, Samuel asked the question, Does the Lord delight in ascension offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. We could actually paraphrase Samuel this way. To obey is sacrifice. It is the real sacrifice. The old covenant animal sacrifices were just symbols and metaphors of the true sacrifices that God wants, what is the true sacrifice God wants? He wants us. He wants our obedience. He wants our lives given over to holy living. Further, it's interesting that Paul says this is to be a living sacrifice. Again, this is one of those things, just like you got many bodies as one offering, that looks like a contradiction. Here, living sacrifice, this seems like a contradiction too, because the word sacrifice means to kill. It especially means to kill liturgically. This is the term that would be used for killing the animal sacrifices. So how can we be living sacrifices? When you sacrifice something, isn't it dead? How can you have a living dead thing? Well, again, understand, sacrifice means obedience. We sacrifice ourselves, how? By denying ourselves, and by dying to ourselves, and by dying to our sin and putting our sin to death. Jesus really taught this same truth when he said, take up your cross and follow me. That's a call to a sacrificial way of life, a a cruciform pattern of life. It's a call to a life of sacrificial obedience. That's what taking up your cross and denying yourself means. Paul's saying the same thing here. This is a life of, of, of taking up your cross, of conforming to the pattern of the cross. The thing is, this is not easy. As we all know, this is very, very hard. The problem with any living sacrifice is that it keeps wanting to crawl off the altar. Don't do that. Paul's saying, stay put on the altar. Grab hold of your body again and again and again and drag it to God's altar where it can be sacrificed. Make your body obey God. That's what Paul is saying here. And here again, it's interesting to think about this. It is our bodies specifically that it to be offered as a living sacrifice. Now, I think this is part for whole. The body here stands for the whole person. But still, we should ask the question, how can you offer your body as a sacrifice to God? Think of it this way. Your body can be a base of operations either for sin or for holiness. Your body can be given over to the service of sin or to the service of God. Which will it be? It's really interesting. Back in Romans chapter 3, When Paul was summarizing what life under the dominion of sin looks like and how the whole human race has been locked up under the reign of sin, he emphasizes how sin expresses itself through the body. And so if you go back and read in Romans chapter 3, you'll find he kind of gives a catalog of different body parts and how these body parts are used in sinful ways. So he speaks of tongues that practice deceit and lips that spread poison, mouths which are full of cursing and bitterness feet that are swift to shed blood, eyes that refuse to to look to God in fear. But then in chapter 6, when Paul describes what it means to be baptized into Christ Jesus, he goes on to say, because we've been united to Christ in baptism, we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. And so he says... We should no longer present the members of our bodies, the parts of our bodies, as instruments of sin, but instead use the different parts of our bodies, the different members of our bodies, as instruments of righteousness. See, for Paul, true spirituality is bodily. True spirituality is expressed in visible bodily Ways. And so now, as those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, how do we use our bodies? We use our bodies for righteousness. Our feet will want to walk in his paths. Our lips will speak the truth in love. Our tongues will speak words of healing. Our hands will serve the needy. Our arms will embrace the lonely. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed. Our eyes will look humbly and patiently to God. We'll begin to use our body in a whole new way. Now understand, this is not the way that our culture sees the body. What does our culture say about the body? The culture says, obey the body. Paul says, make the body obedient. Our culture says, obey your body, obey your body's desires. The culture says, let your body and its desires run your life. That's how you'll be happy, is to give your body what it wants. The body is master of the will, and the job of the will is to get the body what it wants, to provide the body whatever it desires. What Paul says is diametrically opposed to that. Paul says, make the body servant rather than master, and bend the desires of the the body, bend the desires of the body towards righteousness. See, Paul would tell us the body was made good in the beginning as part of God's good creation. But the body now is fallen, and so its desires cannot always be trusted. And so the body must be disciplined and directed towards the end for which God designed it. And so we must use our bodies according to the word of God, according to the Logos. Uh, We must use our bodies according to God's will. But we can go even further with this. The fact that Paul frames the Christian life in terms of sacrifice is really important. It means Paul frames the whole Christian life in terms of worship or in terms of liturgy. Paul wants the whole Christian life to be a liturgy. He wants the whole Christian life to be worship. The whole Christian life is to be a life of priestly service. We are priests, and what do we offer to God? We offer God our bodies, our lives, our very selves. We're to live lives of liturgy lives of worship you know this is special worship what we're doing right here this morning on sunday on the lord's day this is worship in a special sense but as i said in the announcements this morning there's a liturgy after the liturgy flowing out of special worship is general worship you gather to worship god so you can disperse and worship god in all of life See, what we do here on the Lord's Day, this is worship in a very special and foundational sense. But what we do Monday through Saturday is supposed to be worship as well, worship in a general sense. And when that becomes true, everything in your life becomes an altar. Again, this is how the reign of Jesus gets fleshed out. I'm using that word fleshed out intentionally. This is how the reign of Jesus gets embodied in the world. When you offer your body as a living sacrifice. What happens when you offer your body as a living sacrifice? You find altars everywhere. Everything in life becomes an altar where you can offer yourself to God. The kitchen becomes an altar. The office cubicle is an altar. The bedroom is an altar. The coffee shop is an altar. The ball field is an altar. All of these become places where you can offer your body as a living sacrifice by obeying, by loving, by serving. See, Paul would say, glorify God in all that you do. Give yourself to God in all that you do. Do everything for His honor. Do all for His glory. Let your life go up in smoke as a sweet-smelling, sacrificial aroma to God. Remember a few weeks ago when I preached on Romans 1, and we saw there the basic problem with humanity that Paul identified, the core of what humans get wrong? What is it? We fail to thank and glorify God we fail to worship God as God and instead we worship and serve idols idolatry is the issue if the fundamental problem the sin behind all other sins is idolatry then what's the antidote the antidote must be worship of the true and living God if the fundamental problem is worshiping idols the answer to that is going to be found in worshiping the true and living God Remember how we talked about how man is always a worshiper? He is inescapably a worshiper. Man will always worship. But the problem is he can distort what he worships. Again, think about this. If the essence of sin is man worshiping idols, the essence of the gospel is God restoring man as a true worshiper. And that's really what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is about. This is how Paul summarizes and crystallizes the whole Christian life. Just as he crystallized the life of the non Christian as idolatry, so he crystallizes the life of the Christian as worship. We are being restored to right worship of the true God in all of life. If fallen man serves the creature rather than the creator, redeemed man once again serves the creator. If fallen man exchanges the truth of God for a lie, redeemed man will exchange lies for truth. If fallen man glorifies self and lives to fulfill bodily desires, redeemed man will glorify God and offer his body to God as a living sacrifice. Fallen man fails to glorify God, he glorifies himself. What does redeemed man do? He lives for the glory of God. Indeed, this is how Paul describes Abraham's life of faith in Romans chapter 4. Paul says Abraham grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. Abraham did what Adam failed to do in the garden. He glorified God. Abraham is the anti-Adam. He's a model of what it means to live an anti-Adamic life. Not a fallen life, but a redeemed life. If Adam glorified himself when he sinned, Abraham glorifies God by trusting in his promises. That's what Paul calls us to here in Romans chapter 12. To reverse the the, the Adamic fall in our pattern of life. To stop living for our own glory and start living for the glory of God. To reverse idolatry so that we worship the true God instead. If Adam and his descendants did not recognize God's power, if they dishonored God and dishonored their bodies through perversion, then we should recognize God's power. And recognize God's mercy. And we should honor God by, by using our bodies in honorable ways. Ways that honor God's design. That's the liturgy we're called to in daily life. If we do this, Paul says, we will grow in wisdom so that we will know the will of God in all situations. If you live this way, you will know the acceptable and perfect will of God in all of life. You will understand what we as the people of God should do. But there is an obstacle to this kind of liturgical living. And Paul identifies this obstacle to this kind of liturgical living. He identifies this obstacle here in this passage as the world. What stands in the way of living this life of worship 24-7, serving God, offering ourselves as a bodily sacrifice all the time? What stands in the way? The world, Paul says. Paul says we should strive to live holy lives that are pleasing to God, but there is always pressure to please the world instead. The world pressures us to conform to its ways. One translator puts this in memorable language. He captures Paul's words this way in verse 2. Do not let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds. It's as though Paul says, look, there are two molds, two patterns. There is the world's mold and there is God's mold. Which one will you pour your life into? Which one will you be squeezed into? There's an antithesis between these two different molds, a a war between these two different patterns of life. Which will it be? Which way will you go? This is a fork in the road. Will you go God's way and be transformed or go the world's way and be conformed? The fact is, the world has been very successful in squeezing many Christians and many churches into its mold. This was happening even as the New Testament was being written. The church in Corinth is a very obvious example of this. Think about what Paul has to deal with when he writes to the Corinthian Christians. The Christians in Corinth were being squeezed into the world's mold. And so the Corinthian church looked a lot like the world with its sexual immorality, its divisions between rich and poor, its love of celebrity, its litigiousness, where everybody runs off to to sue one another in court every time there's a dispute. Its confusion about the proper roles of men and women, its low view of the body, its failure to practice love. The Corinthian church was getting squeezed into the world's mold. If you read the letters From Jesus to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. There in those letters you find the same kinds of things. One of the major sins that Jesus rebukes the churches for is that they are too tolerant. They're too nice about sin. They tolerate what is intolerable. They don't have the guts to call sin what it is and deal with it. They don't discipline those who should be disciplined. They tolerate false teachers instead of stopping them and shutting them up. They don't get condemned for being too harsh, but for being too nice. So just to give you one example, Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, I have this against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches people to practice sexual immorality. Jesus threatens judgment against that church for its toleration of what is intolerable. Whether you think Jezebel was actually some woman leader who had put herself forward in the church as a kind of, you know, super first wave feminist or something like that, or if it just stands for a group of people within the church who are doing false teaching that led to sexual immorality. Whatever the case, whoever Jezebel is, the presence of Jezebel in the congregation makes Jesus angry, and Jesus threatens terrible things against the church of Thyatira if they will not deal with it. Of course, we see the same thing in our own day where Jezebels have infiltrated churches, and we have churches that tolerate the intolerable. They tolerate the intolerable in order to avoid persecution or ostracism. They tolerate the intolerable because they want to look respectable in the world's eyes. They don't want to rock the boat. If you see a church with a rainbow flag, then you know that church has been conquered. You know that church has conquered territory. That church has been squeezed into the world's mold. But that's not the only way this can look. The same would be true in a church where adultery or fornication go on unchecked. That church is being squeezed into the world's mold. They may not have a rainbow flag outside, but they've got sexual sin within that's not being repented of, that's not being dealt with. There are a lot of cases where a congregation has set out with good intentions to influence its culture, to influence its city. A congregation will form and they'll say, we want to impact our city. That's great. It's great to want to impact your city for Christ. But so often the city ends up influencing the church more than the church influences the city. That ought not to be. What drives this conformity to the world? It is cowardice more than anything else. It is a desire to please the world more than a desire to please God. It is pandering to the world. A lot of churches have compromised with the world by not teaching the whole counsel of God. They fail to bring the word of God to bear upon the controversial and contentious issues of the day. Oh, we just want to love people. We're going to be nice to everybody. Jesus won't have that. Niceness is not necessarily a virtue. These churches might say, oh, we're being winsome. We're being missional. And I would say being winsome and being missional can be really good things if they're actually true. But in many cases, they become masks for compromise, and for cowardice. All kinds of sin creeps into the church under those labels, winsomeness and missional. There's a rather well-known pastor in a large American city who, despite ministering for decades in a city where more babies are aborted than born alive, never once mentioned abortion from the pulpit. Why? How is that anything other than cowardice and unfaithfulness and compromise. Here's another example, just to to continue to illustrate this, how churches can be conformed to the ways of the world and the thinking of the world. There are pastors who substitute the language of therapy for biblical categories. So for example, one supposedly Christian uh, college dean said this recently. He said, the old ways of construing certain doctrines no longer land in the world, and if not reimagined, they are going to promote harm and irrelevance. That is to say, what he's really saying here, if you look at the quote in its full context, which I won't give you, he's basically saying, if we look at everything in terms of sin and repentance, that's just not relevant to people's experiences any longer. So instead of sin and repentance, we need to talk about trauma and healing. Or, or trauma and therapy. Okay? That is conforming our thinking to the thinking of the world. I'll admit, trauma is a real category. There's no doubt about that. But it can never take the place of sin in the Christian vocabulary. Sin and repentance are foundational categories for the Christian. We can't ever give them up. Look, there is no question what's happening in our day. There's no question what's going on in the world around us. Doesn't it seem when you look around like the world has gone insane? That's why people talk about clown world. It just seems like the world has gone crazy. Why is our society going in the direction it is? It wasn't always this way. Why does our society seem to be descending so rapidly into idolatry, immorality, and insanity? Well, I want to tell you, this is what happens when the salt loses its saltiness. When the church fails in her mission, when the church conforms to the world's ways, what happens? The the Great Commission, you could say, the Great Commission gets reversed. The world begins to disciple the church more than the church is discipling the world. And the world begins to conform the church to its ways rather than the church transforming the world to God's ways. When the salt is salty like it should be, the world gets transformed, not all at once, but gradually. The nations get discipled, cultures come to more and more align with the Bible's teaching. That's what the early Christians did in the Roman Empire. The early Christians lived in a very hostile culture, a culture that hated them. They were marginalized, but they they were transformed rather than conformed. They were transformed by the renewing of their minds rather than conform to the ways of the world. And so what happened? They became a transformative presence in that culture. Like yeast permeating the dough of that culture, they transformed it. They permeated it and transformed it. See, we need to understand every culture is being discipled. Every society is being discipled all the time. Disciples are never static. They're always moving in one direction or another. They're either being discipled into the service of an idol or into the service of the true God. Every society is being squeezed into the mold of some deity, the will of some deity. You know what the Great Commission in Matthew 28 tells us? The Great Commission in Matthew 28 tells us it is our responsibility as the church to squeeze the world into the mold of Christ's commandments. That's what the early Christians did in the Roman Empire, and that's what we must do as well. That is the mission, to squeeze the world into the mold of God's commandments. I know many of you are uh, Flannery O'Connor fans. I'm a big fan of Flannery O'Connor's work myself. Uh, I find her stories to be wonderful. Her stories are wonderful works of southern Christian literature showing the grotesqueness of sin and the utter graciousness of grace. They're they're really wonderful reading, very entertaining, but with a point. But Flannery O'Connor was much more than just a great storyteller. She had some really profound insights into the direction of the culture and the plight of the church even 60 years ago. Listen to what she said. She said, The world pushes against the church, push back. She said, The world pushes against the church, we need to push back against the world just as hard. The world's pushing against us, we've got to push back. That is a great way to summarize the mission of the church today. It's just two words, easy to remember push back a great motto for the church for christians to adopt in our day paul says do not be conformed to the world instead be transformed why so that you will fit into god's mold and so then you can go on to transform the world do not be conformed to the world's ways instead be transformed into god's mold and what happens when we are transformed in this way the world is transformed The world comes to be squeezed into God's mold. See, a church that's not very different from the world can't make much of a difference. It's only by being different that we can make a difference. A church that conforms to the world is going to be deformed rather than transformed. The faithful church is not going to fit into the world. Certainly not the world as it exists today. A faithful church is not going to fit into our culture. It's going to stand out. And, of course, it always takes courage to stand out. We all like to imagine, oh, if I was ever faced with that decision of having to choose Christ over being persecuted, faithfulness to Christ over suffering, I would choose Christ, no doubt. But many, many Christians over the centuries, have not made that choice. And when pressured, they caved. It takes courage to stand out. It takes courage to be a nonconformist. It takes courage to be a true counterculture. It takes courage to not be squeezed into the world's mold, but instead to pour ourselves into God's mold. But see, that's that's our calling. Again, listen to Flannery O'Connor. This one's a little humorous. She said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. That's exactly right. Because I'll tell you this, if you believe the truth of God and you live by the truth of God, you are going to look odd in the eyes of the world today. You're going to look crazy. If you think sex is only for marriage, and marriage is only between a man and a woman, and it's supposed to be for life, the world is going to think you are insane, that you have lost your mind. If you think Jesus rose from the dead and now is literally king of kings, ruling over the world at this very moment, the world is going to laugh at you. If you think God made the world in six days, you're going to be mocked. If you believe this book, cover to cover, is the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God, that it should be our guide and our authority in all of life, not just for private matters, but public as well, Again, the world is going to think you're crazy. They're going to lock you up in an asylum. The reality is, there's no virtue in being weird just for the sake of being weird. That's obvious. But if you are virtuous, you will be considered weird. I can guarantee you that. There's no getting around this reality. There is going to be a cost that comes with not conforming. To be transformed rather than conform is always going to be costly. But see, if we're really united to Christ, if we're really united to the crucified and risen Christ, then we've got the power to do this. We've got the strength to not conform. Dead things can only go with the stream. But living things can go against it. Living things can swim upstream. Living living things don't have to conform to the stream. They can swim upstream. And because we have been made alive together in Christ, we can go against the flow. We can swim upstream in this culture. See, we've got to be willing to stand contramundum. You know that Latin phrase, contramundum, means against the world. That was Athanasius' motto in the 4th century. Athanasius was a great leader in the church. He was a bishop. Uh, He defended the doctrine of the Trinity against worldly philosophy and against pagan religious alternatives and even compromised people in the church. Athanasius was exiled five different times by four different Roman emperors. Sent away, banished from the realm, from his home. He spent 45 years of his life in total in exile. But it was worth it. Because Athanasius was not a conformist. He was a transformationalist. Athanasius would not conform to the world's ideas about God. Instead, he was transformed by the renewing of his mind. And so he eventually transformed the world. He transformed the way the world thought about God in his day. We need a crop of Athanasiuses in our own day. Charles Spurgeon dealing with a theological downgrade and all kinds of compromise and churches around him put it this way in his day. He said, contrary to popular contemporary belief, as Christians we were never called to become more like the world so that we could fit in or be better liked and in so doing become more attractive to the world. No, we were instead called to become more like Christ and we were told that we would be hated and despised as he was. Yes, there is a very important place for love, kindness, compassion, grace, and mercy. But nowhere in there is there a place for compromise with the way of the world and with unrighteousness to pursue union at the expense of truth is treason to the Lord Jesus. It is treason against Jesus to conform to the ways of the world. Our loyalty, our allegiance is to be with Jesus no matter what. And understand this is all by grace. This is all by mercy. Paul does not command us to transform ourselves or to renew our own minds. He actually speaks in the passive voice, which makes you ask the question, who's actually doing this? Who is the actor? Well, of course, it's God. God is the one who does these things to us and in us. It is grace, grace, grace. It is mercy, mercy, mercy. And because it's grace, because it's mercy, we can be utterly confident. We can be completely bold in speaking and acting on God's truth, in the world but we also know we must do so in humility there should not be a speck or a smidgen of self-righteousness as we go about our non-conforming transformationalist way of life not a, not a speck not a smidgen of self-righteousness because all the transforming and renewing happens by grace not by our own strength it's all God's mercy but because it's God's mercy we should also never think there's no hope for this world anymore it's too sinful, it's too hardened, it's too far gone. No. If God transformed and renewed you and me, then he can transform and renew anyone. God can make a nonconformist out of anyone. So what should you do? What should we do? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Be renewed in your mind. Resist the idolatrous liturgies of the world. Do not conform to them. And instead, give God a holy and acceptable sacrifice through Christ the Logos. Be conformed to his ways. Be transformed into his way of life. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed so that you conform to God's pattern for life. And further know that when the church is transformed in this way, when the church is transformed into God's pattern, the nations and their cultures will follow. By the mercies of God, that's our call. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.